It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Jean. I'm your host tonight, and along with me is co-host Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Jean. How are you? I'm good. It's good to hear your voice. You as well. Happy Sunday. Yes, it is happy. I'm happy this weekend's over. I'm working far too hard on the weekends. I need Oh, my a, God. A, the Bubble Hour chat is my slowdown time these days. Um, Love it. Amanda has tonight off, and Ellie is with us, but you won't hear her on the line. She's going to be tweeting uh, as the show goes on, so watch for her on Twitter tonight. We say hello to both of them. And also a big hello to our guest tonight, Danielle Boland, is on the line. Hi, Danielle. Hello. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for being with us. Well, I'm going to tell everyone a little bit more about you in a moment, but first I want to get right to our topic So tonight we're talking about what we can learn from high-powered executives who are notoriously challenging to treat for alcoholism and addiction. Society stereotypes alcoholics and addicts as losers who who lack willpower, but visionary successful leaders are considered individuals with great strength and power. And again and again we hear from people that are new to recovery that say, Well, I'm a successful person with a drinking problem. How can this be? I must be the only one. Well, in fact, research shows that many of the same characteristics that contribute to career success are also indicators of an addictive personality. Neuroscience David Linden from John Hopkins University, uh, John Hopkins School of Medicine has pointed out that the brains of drug addicts and alcoholics are remarkably similar to those of bold visionary leaders who thrive on uncertain times. So some of the same traits that make for a good CEO, like risk tolerance, a strong drive for success, obsessive compulsive tendencies, dedication, and novelty seeking also make one susceptible to addiction. Dr. Linden told Forbes magazine, my suspicion is that what makes some people more likely to rise to the top is the same thing that makes them more likely to be addicts. Well, most of us alcoholics are high-functioning, at least for a while. People in recovery will often say that there was a period of time in their drinking where that behavior worked very well for them socially, emotionally, for self-medication, or to enhance their performance. So depending on the the speed of the disease's momentum and the particular circumstances of someone's life, that window can close very quickly or appear to extend indefinitely. 
Alcoholism is a progressive disease, though, so eventually one's ability to function at a high level will decline. So in other words, it works until it doesn't. And for some people, that can be a much longer period of time than others. Now, most of us are not CEOs of big corporations, but whether we're an entrepreneur, a PTA president, town counselor, soccer coach, or Sunday school teacher, or working our way up to the C-suite, we can all identify with that feeling of duality, at times feeling shameful because we don't feel worthy of being looked up to, and at other times feeling very defiant because we must be all right if we can still accomplish so much. The people around us may dismiss our concerns or even encourage us to continue drinking because our high level of functioning makes their lives easier. So our goal tonight is to learn some of the challenges and techniques for helping the high functioning alcoholic because maybe that can help us identify some of our own stumbling blocks. So here to help us figure that out is our guest, Danielle Boland of RealYouRevolution.com. She's a recovery coach who specializes in working with executives and elite clients. Danielle, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thanks so much. It's great to be on tonight. Yes, and it's great to have you because we've had you on the show before, and you always give us so much to think about. Now, Danielle... Uh, You can hear Danielle more of her story on some of our earlier episodes. So after you're done listening to this one, check the Bubble Hour archives for the January 12, 2014 episode, Talking to Friends and Family, and August 24, uh, 2014, Getting Sober, When You Live with Someone Who Drinks. So for tonight, Danielle tells us about how recovery led to a career change and uh, tell us how you combine your business with recovery skills to help others. Excellent. Um, So for me, I think when I look back, and I've covered this a little bit before, um, you know, success was the only option. So I do believe I was genetically predisposed to um, addiction and everything that you talked about. I believe that I had all of those isms from birth. Um, But I also think that a good amount of the social um, aspects around me and the community contributed to that. So what I mean is, you know, maybe even as early as fourth or fifth grade, playing on a sports field. Um, I was very um, perceptive, and I noticed that, you know, when I started doing really well, people, even my own parents, you know, were really happy. They were proud of me. Um, I was president of my class in high school, president of the National Honor Society. It was kind of like, okay, I do this, I get this reward. And I believe that two things came from that. Number one was to be more chameleon-like, to please people. And number two is, you know, I just thought that I had to do those things to be deserving of love. Um, While that wasn't like a conscious thought at that time, looking back, I believe that that is is really what happened. Um, So I went to college. I was actually so um, bung-ho and so much of a perfectionist that I really didn't have a problem through college. It was so important to get, you know, honors and get a great job when I got out. Um, it was after I got out, I got into the radio industry, and um, shortly after, you know, a lot of the partying went on there, but I moved into the high-tech world um, and, you know, moved my way up to uh, a sales director in IT, but, you know, it, we're going to cover it a little bit more, but obviously this world um, led me, um, you know, there was a lot of ways to justify drinking and, and partying, but... Um, a few years ago, I just really said, you know, is this it? And 
um, you know, the, it always, the word alcoholic was such a deterrent to getting me sober. And I believe that for so many people because for the longest time I'd read books, I'd fill out alcoholic questionnaires and I'd say, am I one, am I not? And it was only when my life got, you know, I had everything I wanted in my life and I felt empty inside. And it became that whole idea that I talk about quite a lot that was, you know what, I deserve more from the world and the world deserves more from me. Um, So I did go to treatment and um, I always liked my industry. I mean, I made great money, but, you know, I always felt like I was destined to help people. When I get out of treatment, um, my position ended up being eliminated and um, I had some time and I just said, you know what, this time I'm going to rewrite my story. How do I want things to go? I was learning the basics of sobriety that I could dictate how this show goes and how it ends. And, you know, obviously there are things with, uh, that are not in our control, but when in active addiction, um, you're kind of just letting the world happen around you sometimes, um, you know, filling yourself with the fog of alcohol or drugs. So um, I started to do a lot of advocacy work at the State House in uh, Massachusetts and started working for, um, became the Massachusetts chapter leader for young people in recovery. And also started doing some recovery coaching outside of sober companion, or I'm sorry, outside of, you know, um, sponsorship work. And in January of last year, I really started um, my business piece, um, started doing the work then, and really formally rolled everything out in the spring. Uh, and and we so you know we do a whole suite of services essentially so like recovery coaching, um, um, sober companion work, family services, um, intervention work, and really it is just amazing to wake up in the morning and know that you know I've been and go to bed at night knowing I'm true to myself um, and that I have found a way to be high naturally. Yeah, I've really found my calling. Um, and I don't need any of the outside things to put into my body um, to make me feel that way today. Wow. That's so amazing how your journey brought you to not only helping other people, but really connecting with them in a powerful way and and brought you a business that's clearly fascinating and feeds your soul. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I have to be honest, when I first started, it was kind of like, I knew I had, like, entrepreneurial um, drive. And, like, again, like we talked about, you know, there's certain things about people with addictive tendencies, and that's one of them. But I really didn't know if I was going to like this work. And, you know, was this just me doing the all or nothing, black or white? You know, is this just, oh, I have to get 100% into recovery? So it was very open-minded that that might very well be the case. But once I started working with people, um, I remember one night just driving home after dropping someone at a detox and I felt high, but it was mm-hmm. like a buzz, like an adrenaline buzz, but a healthy one. And I felt wonderful that I was able to help this person. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I have found my calling. So it was really neat. Again, I had to be open-minded to the fact that, um, but it was wonderful once it was confirmed that this was the way to go. <laughs> So a lot of your clients are executives and in a corporate setting. Can you tell us what's, what is that like, walking into that type of a setting? What do you usually uh, find yourself confronted with in a typical day there? So 
I think, you know, I don't obviously like walk into the, the setting actually physically, but I, I, you know, with any of these clients, um, there's a good amount of ego involved typically. Um, there's, again, the whole denial. And something that I wanted to, to mention is um, one of my favorite people in recovery is Tommy Rosen, and he just came out with this amazing book, Recovery 2.0. And in it, he says, the definition of addiction is any behavior you continue to do despite the fact that it brings negative consequences into your life. So I just wanted to call that out because that is one of the major ways that we can address um, people who think, you know, that they're they're above addiction and that, that they're not bad. And so when you use that term, um, you know, quite a bit of people fall under it. Um, mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of times people are are resistant as well. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so, you know, you're dealing with people that, you know, how do they say it, an egomaniac with an inferiority complex? Right. One way, typically, where everything is meant to look great on the outside, and really it's a house of cards, and that house of cards crumbles. And the goal is to to dig in and say, how do we rebuild this foundation from the inside out um, so that, you know, people feel solid without any type of outer reach for inside validation. Right. And that's got to be quite hard in the corporate setting because there is so much outer validation, right? Um, Completely. I think... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, go go yeah, ahead. So that's... Yeah, that's one of the, the, I think, the most amazing things. When things happen with my job, um, you know, it was quite unexpected, and that was my identity. You know, I was partially a workaholic, and and that's where I think I'm able to help people in this area so well, is my job defines me. So not only did I get sober and have to, like, wake up from a lifetime of living in this, you know, fog, I also had to say, who are you? What do you like? Like, I didn't run back to this career. Um, I had to find that and dig deep in all areas of my life. Um, So knowing that no matter what position someone has, I understand now that, that everyone can have those doubts and insecurities. So it just takes some time um, before some of that starts to work its its way out. I mean, no one, despite how it looks on the outside, is living a perfect life or close to it. So, Danielle, if there's a clear disposition for addiction for, for um, successful people or for a good portion of them, let's say, how does the environment mm-hmm. that they find themselves in, the work environment, how does that contribute to the problem? So, I mean, so many ways. Like, you know, business meetings, pressure to mirror those that you're trying to work with or sell to. You know, this idea of building rapport. I remember we used to be told, like, do what people do out on a um, on a at a business dinner. If they order a drink, you should order a drink, you know, um, especially being a female. Um, I'm not going to lie here, but, you know, being a female in these industries, uh, there's absolutely pressure to go out with the men. And, um, you know, especially if people deem you as, as somewhat attractive and, and that's your way to sell. 
Um, and, and that's just by being with them. I'm not saying, you know, doing any, any types of activities or anything, but it's an expectation. And, um, you know, a lot of these people travel a ton. They spend a, time, a lot of time away from home. And then, you know, the ego piece, again, where the outer world defines our inside. And, and you know, I, I know we're going to talk about this as well a little bit later on, but, you know, one of the things that in, in AA is, you know, we admitted that we were powerless over, or I'm sorry, 12-step program. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. And people think that that means, um, you know, oh, I didn't have money, I don't have a home, and all of this. All it means is that inside we're completely unmanageable. So spiritual bankruptcy and those types of things. So as much of that outside stuff that someone looks like they're keeping up throughout business, even hitting their numbers, um, no one knows what goes on behind closed doors and no one knows what someone is really dealing with inside. I mean, people that you would never think isolate um, go home and drink in their car all night. Um, People that you would assume isolate, justify going out by going to bars after work with people. So it's, it's, it, there's just every reason in the world that people can find, you know, kegs in the kitchen in offices, um, you know, especially in startup companies, it's such a big thing now, beer in the refrigerator. Um, so really the question is that people end up asking themselves is why um, not drink tonight when, or today when the question should be why drink? So that's kind right. of and the atmosphere that, that you know, you, you go into. Jean, this is Catherine, just to kind of chime in. I'm laughing a little bit because when when you said, you know, the ego, I mean, I almost just busted out laughing and you're talking about these people and, like, I am these people. Um, I'm not, I haven't quite made it to the C-suite yet, but I'm a, I'm a senior vice president in a multinational financial services corporation, and I echo everything that you're saying. That's been my experience, and it actually kept me – um, drinking for a long time because I I felt so much pressure to keep up with the guys, um, and I know I haven't had as much um, problem where people have really given me a very hard time. Like I, I one time heard a woman in recovery say that she was at a client dinner and the client was um, from Europe, and you know he said, "Oh, you can't toast with." water and he was really upset that, he, that you know they poured her wine and she toasted with it but then put the glass back down and the client was displeased and so we have to sort of sit with you know being uncomfortable and not you know kind of keeping everything smooth and pleasing everybody and being quote unquote perfect um and then plus the practical purposes of uh, right now I'm sitting in a hotel room. I travel 70, 80% of the time, which I've talked about before. Um, in an early recovery, I was at a conference and I left the kind of, you know, party event that was going on. I left at about 1030 and I went back to my room. And then the next day, one of my kind of worst fears came true. And my boss said, oh, you know, you really shouldn't have left so early. Um, all these clients were there and all this great business was happening and I had to sit there, and for me, that felt like a major failure. And I just had to sit with the fear of being imperfect and being uncomfortable with that. 
Um, and what I've found in, out in recovery, this actually came to me very recently, and I think I've said it on the show before, that I've realized my fear is if I'm imperfect, I'm incompetent. So it's not even like it, it, my baseline, <laughs> which Brené Brown talks a lot about. She said that mm-hmm. women, by and large, have a fear of being seen as imperfect, and that's their shame, and men's shame is a fear of being seen as weak. Um, so, you know, my fear is that if I'm imperfect, I'm incompetent. So, you know, a 20-year career of staying until the bar closed didn't matter if one night I left at 1030 at night. You know, that was my thought patterning that I've been unwinding. This is Jean. I, I found, too, sometimes um, I'm a small business owner, but have been, you know, part of of uh, organizations where, again, I found myself working with a lot of men, and they would all go for drinks, and, and I would go along. But I always found there was a line, like at the end of the night, then maybe they'd go off to a strip club for drinks. And I'd think, okay, well, that's that's where I get off. Like, I'm not going there. Um, so they would go. And I, in a way, I sort of just feel like, well, that was where the line was then. And now the line is somewhere else, because you know, I won't sit down and have those first drinks with them at the hotel bar. So is that what you try and teach people, Danielle? And Catherine, is that what you've learned in recovery is just to move the line back into your comfort zone and to learn some new skills around sort of maneuvering around, um, you know, the alcohol talk and the, the manners, the smoke and mirrors of how do you manage the toast without wine? How, how do you handle those things? Is that simply new skills? Yeah, so this is Danielle. I want to chime in. So two funny things that, well, one funny thing, I did not draw the line at not going to the strip club. So, you know, that's where I can tell you I was a person that the FOMO, like fear of missing out. I went, I did everything. I had managers that hired me based on the fact that I was a female, just assuming that I would sleep with them. Um, I mean, the things that I saw um, was, you know, experiencing, and these are people that I guarantee you go home to their families, um, and their families have no idea that these people act in this way. Um, but mm-hmm. the other thing that I was going to say to you is that I remember in my 20s, I knew I was very good at anything I did, another one of these, you know, traits. So the article that I had read then you talked a little bit about, Jean, was um, Addicts Are Superhuman, by Tom Matlack, and I think that was also in Forbes. It is one of the most amazing articles on this and explains a lot of those traits. But I remember saying to myself, like, if I'm this good at all of this, like, what if I took that piece out of my life? What if I never went to work hungover or tired? What if, and that was in my 20s. So by the time I got sober, um, I remember just lying in bed. I was 33, and I just said, um, you know what, like, I'm, I'm re- I love my job, and I'm completely, like, people think they don't steal. You're stealing from a business when you go in hungover or, you know, you're half present or you're leaving early to go to the bars. Like, that's stealing someone's time and money. Um, and, and I just, I knew I wanted to give my job my all. And so when you come from those angles with this stuff, people start to say, yeah. Like, I want to do that, too. You know, this isn't to me about you're an alcoholic, you need to stop drinking. It's, hey, here's where your life is. 
how do we get your life to your fullest potential? And let's start being really brutally honest with ourselves to get there. And I think that a piece of that is standing in your power and being honest with yourself. And there are plenty of high-powered people in sobriety um, or people that just don't drink. And if they're standing in their own power, what they don't realize, and they're in a power, a position of power, that people might either, A, um, completely respect that, but B, also look up to them. And you don't even know who you're influencing. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think those are a few of the things that, you know, once someone starts standing in their power, learning how to say no when they when when it, it there's no need not to. I'm learning that really how much business, um, like Catherine said, goes on after say ten PM at night. And if people are drinking, what do you remember the next day and how much follow up is there on it? Um, you know, there there's not I always say this too to clients. When have you ever woken up in the morning and said, I wish I drank last night? You know, I did that once in Las Vegas at a business meeting because I felt like I missed out. But that was once in my life. Hmm. Yeah, and I love this idea. This, you know, standing in your power is a really important one for me. Um, And your question, Jean, about how do I deal with those moments, it's straight-up honesty. I mean, is it... Is it a failure if I left at 1030 at night from the conference event? Answer, no. You know, is it (laughs) – if somebody says to me, oh, you really should drink or why aren't you drinking? I can't believe it. Like, nope, thanks. No, I don't drink. Why not? Health and wellness. You know, it only is hard if I make it hard. Which, believe me, my brain can go straight to mm-hmm. codependency where I want you to feel comfortable with the facts of, you know, what I'm doing. And my responsibility right now is to be honest. Now, having said that, I, I narrowly escaped having to go to an event that was actually going to be a, a wine tasting at a series of vineyards. And it just so happens that I had another trip already booked and my boss was going to make me rearrange things and still come. And I was thinking, okay, you know, I might have to figure out how to deal with this. I was thinking I was going to have to tell him like, look, I'm in recovery. And it's not, um, that's not happening. <laughs> so, but you know what? It's just getting honest. It's, it's only hard if I make it hard and I make it hard in my head and I have an opportunity to change my thoughts I have that power to change my thoughts. Um, And so when Danielle is speaking about my life being unmanageable, um, you know, letting go and for me, you know, this idea of being powerless over alcohol gives me back my power because I get to change my thinking. And when I change my thinking, I get to change my behavior and my actions. So, Catherine, was it hard for you to wrap your head around the idea then that you could be imperfect and competent at the same time and that maybe your career success wasn't because you were appearing perfect but because you were competent, good at your job, and worthy of your success anyway? Was that hard to accept? Well, this is something that I'm still really actively working on, actually. So, I mean, my my high-functioning stuff, it kept me me in this – 
martyr space where I believed that I deserved it, that I deserved this break, um, that I was using alcohol to kind of numb as a release. It was, I was very isolated. I had this real belief that, you know, I need to do everything myself. I don't have to ask for help. Um, and all of those thought patterns and, and behaviors, they're still there when you take away the alcohol, right? So I've had to learn how to start asking for help. Um, so I'll give you an example. It was you know, 7 o'clock on a Friday night. I, this was recently. I was sitting in the office, and I had 143 unread emails. And I just started having this rising feeling of dread, like I, I'm not going to be able to catch up. I have this belief that I need to be at the top of the mountain at all times, which means every email is read and filed and sorted and acted upon. And and I I called uh, my sponsor and I said, you know, I'm just, I'm having a complete panic. And she walked me through, can you let your slip show? This is what she says to me. Um, you know, can you let your slip show? And, of course, no, <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> but, you know, so I'm starting to learn um, putting some boundaries around the work life and a- applying that honesty to my thinking of, like, is that real that you need to have every email read and figured out, you know, at the end of every day, no matter how long it takes you, like, that's just not realistic. So I, I have to say that the realization that I believe if I'm imperfect then I'm incompetent is as kind of as far as I've gotten. <laughs> and now I'm working on the, um, you know, kind of being able to sit with that and be imperfect and, and definitely asking for help. I mean, Jean, this goes to our bubble hour theme every week, right, of, you know, <laughs> creating a recovery community, but it's true. That's, that's what's saving my bacon right now. Mm. Now, Danielle, we're talking about some very specific challenges for, for um, executives in recovery, but what are some of the sort of hallmarks of treating this type of client? What are some of the things that you find that they experience that others don't? Um, okay, do you mean, like, I, I mean, I can go into some of the different approaches that we use, or? Sure. Uh, okay. Okay, so what I would say is kind of the first level, this is for someone that calls and says, you know, I have XYZ job, I cannot leave my job, um, but I need some help. So I would say that the first level there is you could do a combination of things, like an outpatient program, um, 12 step meetings if someone's open to it, and then the recovery coaching. So that can be a few hours a week, either over the phone or um, yeah, like Skype or FaceTime or in person, um, all depending on how much people want to pay. Obviously, you know, if you get in the car, travel time, all that is, is more money. Um, but so that's kind of the phase one. So it's let's see, does this person really want this so bad and recognize? Um, that that this is a problem, and are they at the point in their drinking where they're ready to really accept that they're powerless and that their lives are unmanageable? So I would say typically this is not the time that people stop drinking for good. Um, It happens, 
but it's not, you know, the the um, larger percentage of, of people. So you go through that process. Um, that can be like, a, you know, the most of any session. So the recovery coaching, a best practice is six months um, of that once a week. So if you aren't seeing someone progress, then you don't really want to be working. Um, you know, you don't want to waste someone's time or money either. And you want them to get the help that they need. So to, to explain to people what recovery coaching is, there are two kinds. So there's a peer recovery coaching, which is used, you know, in the industry with, um, so say you work at a treatment center. They hire peer recovery coaches as, you know, the aides there and things to help. Then there's the professional recovery coaches. These people are paid a lot more money to be there. You know, if people need calls at midnight, um, we refer out to therapists. Some of us are therapists, um, but we don't take the place of a therapist. The goals of a recovery coach are really how to live life on life's terms, um, how to do some of the things that you were just talking about, Jean, you know, how to go to a dinner, how to prep someone for a dinner and make sure that they don't drink. If they have a function, have the, the plans to leave. You know, and some of this people get from um, a 12-step program. Uh, however, we just feel like we are able to give them a lot more options outside of that kind of exclusive solution. Um, so more of like a holistic approach. You know, how are you taking care of your body? Is what you're eating affecting your mood so then you want to drink um, or affecting you physically, pain, whatever, so you want to drink? Um, you know, spiritually, like all of those things we believe are part of this recovery pie and so those are all addressed with the coaching. It's where are you today and where do you want to go? And to me, I believe that the only recovery coach that, that I would ever hire um, is someone that has been through recovery themselves. I don't know about you guys, but, like, when there were therapists at my, um, you know, rehab, I was like, I can do a lot of things in this world too, but I can't get sober. So unless you can tell me how to do that. Um, so that's a big piece. So let's say that they go through that process and it's not successful. Sometimes, though, on the first try, we can convince people to do um, this sober companion work. So what this is, um, and I work with a woman, Callie Estes, in Florida, who is amazing. She also does all the courses for this stuff um, with the Addictions Academy. But basically um, what you do is you'd go into a house and you would detox someone um, and only certain people have those kind of credentials to be able to do that or you do a detox and then you know over a weekend or something and then you do two to three weeks of sober companion work and what that is it's living with someone in their home um, and you know actually driving with them in the car to business meetings, you can go to a cafe or something. I mean, no one has to know that I'm with them, um, but they know that I'm out in the car if they need to run out or, you know, so, so it's support all day long. It's, hey, let's wake up in the morning and work out. Um, let's try meditation. Let's try acupuncture. It's trying to, like, you know, schedule a lot of those things for them in the beginning. Let's go to meetings together. You also have to be open in this industry to all pathways of recovery and not everyone wants to do a 12-step program and that's okay and you know we don't want there to be any reason that someone doesn't get treatment 
um, you know, just because they don't like a certain program. So we want to be open to, to just meeting them where they're at and and finding something that works for them. So after that three-week period, really, you ideally either someone now has a sponsor or they have a community, they have more people um, to to work with. They have more confidence so that they realize, you know what, a, a lot of what you guys were explaining, like why do I have to please everyone else? You know, such a big part of this, we tell people to treat themselves like they'd treat their own son or daughter. Now, do you expect that your son or daughter is going to have a worse life if they don't make everyone like them? If you do, chances are you have codependency issues. Um, otherwise, you know that if they stand in their own power and they are true to themselves and, and really who they're meant to be, that they're going to do great. It does not matter what everyone else thinks or what everyone else wants them to do or be. Um, so when you start to kind of, you know, peel away all of those conditioned layers that these people have and these people that fall into success sometimes quit um, and they're not ready to handle the type of success or money that they fall into. Um, so it's, it's, you know, being able to help all of that. And then, um, you know, there are rehabs of all levels. So let's say that neither of those two things work. Typically, people like to try those first, um, depending on money. Some people will say we're going straight to rehab. Here's my thing on that. Um, any money or time spent is worth it. And, and you guys know this. I don't care what excuse anyone has. But if you don't do this and get sober, then the, al- al- you know, the alternative is losing it all. So to me, when people aren't even willing to tap into a 401K in a second, me like it's that important it's that vital to the life the quality of life that you're going to live and the quality of life that your children are going to have your coworkers, and everyone around you um so that last piece would be a rehab and so many um rehab centers will just do specifics to doctors or executives or pilots and they will also um allow them to work during the day so say someone says they're going on a trip a business trip, so they're working all day, but they're with us in the confines of this treatment center that could be in another state. Um, you know, and, and a lot of them, if you have the money, they're amazing um, to be able to get into that uh, environment. But, you know, I do want to reiterate in saying that, too, that, um, you know, there are things at all levels financially for people. You know, that should never um, let someone um, either. That shouldn't be a, a deterrent from getting the treatment that you need. So those are really, you know, those are the the the, the um, primary you know levels um, that we work with. Another huge thing that I think is worth mentioning on this um, is the family treatment. So we do work with families when someone is in treatment um, because you know it's a huge component. Um, people, and, and that's sometimes a benefit of doing the sober companion work. If you are within a home, you can see the dynamics. You can recommend things for therapists and that type of thing. Um, so I think that's really important. And then the other one is intervention work. So doing an intervention on a business person is completely different than what you would do on others. So typically it's a business partner that would be in on the intervention and there are options as far as, you know, cutting someone out of the business um, or, you know, breaking off the partnership. Um, you know, and, and sometimes it, it can go, you know, what are the things that that 
this person can't live without. You know, sometimes it could be the plea of a child, um, but frequently, you know, the business interventions are done in a restaurant. They're not done um, like other interventions, uh, like in a home or something, just based on the specific things that that person might need. Um, you know, if this was done at a home with a business partner, someone's going to, they're going to know right away what's going on. Hmm. So that was long-winded, so but I don't know if you have some comments. Oh, I have a million questions for you. It's so interesting. Well, let's just let's just talk first about the interventions, the last thing you talked about. So just mm-hmm. for those of us that aren't real familiar with what's a regular infor- uh, intervention, what are sort of the, the basics of that versus uh, business executive intervention? Okay. So the first thing that I'll, I'll tell you is interventions typically – um, someone will call and we tell them, you know, a typical intervention is between $2,500 to $5,000. Um, people don't realize sometimes um, we do work on sliding scales. But what happens is with any of our interventions, and this is to me very important, there's like a two-week lead-up period, and that's preparation. Because what what you want to do is, again, find out the person's kind of biggest weaknesses, what they can't do without, and get them to the point where they will go to treatment no matter what. Um, so if if it's like a teenager, you know, you can take away the cell phone. You can, you know, tell them they can't live at home. Um, you know, a stay-at-home mom. It can be, you know, your your children, things like that. If you say, especially if a guy is so, or I should say a guy or a female, um, is so, you know, into their work that they don't really even care about anything else. The idea of being taken out of their own business or, you know, what happens a lot in these situations is people could be doing things um, with money that you don't realize to be able to pay for their addiction. So mm-hmm. you're also able to, um, you know, you have to reach, you have to get to to those areas um, with a business person. So so basically the things that are going to, like, you know, kick them in the knees are going to be different than the things that are going to kick somebody else in the knees, if that makes sense. So you do you spend a, f- a few weeks ahead of time doing your homework and really putting into place what those key All elements are for that person. The family, yeah. So a business intervention typically would only be that person, the business partner, Sometimes the spouse, um, depending on a family intervention, you'd probably have more like five people. Um, you need to identify the roles of all the people. It goes all the way down to who's actually sitting where in a room, um, who's going to be the most at risk to upset this person, who's going to be the best at convincing this person that they need it. So, Again, the the at that two weeks is is you know learning everything you can about this person because basically if you just walk in, which some people do that day, figure out, read the room, and do it, you don't really know as much about the person. Ironically, coming from a sales background, intervention is really selling. I mean, it's it's basically like how do you sell treatment to this person, no matter what. And obviously, like in any sale, the more preparation you do before the sale the more success you're going to have selling them. I love that analogy. And, yeah, because hey, I'm thinking it's, it's true. I'm it's, thinking that you is. don't uh you know, you can't sell something unless you know what's important to the buyer. So, 
Absolutely. And I I think, too, that for the high-functioning alcoholic, it can be hard to see the yets. Yet, you're eligible, too. So you can say, you know, I haven't lost my money yet. Uh, You know, I haven't lost my job, my spouse, my, you know, my license or whatever. You're eligible, too. Right. It can be hard to see that when you've got all your ducks in a row and everything looks shiny and uh, right together. It's absolutely true, and that's why, like I said, we have those different phases. Because you guys, I never know, like in recovery and in this world, it does not matter what you say to someone. Like, I don't care what anyone said. I was going to take my last drink. I was. You know, we can get people there sooner with all of the things that we have out there. So ideally, you know, we're already doing that kind of phase one in it, with recovery coaching and meetings and things with someone Um Whereas years ago, you know, they could have been in the end stages of alcoholism and they wouldn't have even, you know, gone for option one yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And something about option one that I loved that you mentioned, Danielle, was this idea of learning life skills and how to live life on life's terms, which what that means is, you know, if something bad or hard or challenging comes our way, we can see it happen sit with it, feel the emotions. We can, you know, seek help to, you know, navigate our way through the situation. And, you know, that's something that there's, there's diff- that's what we're always talking about, I guess, on this show. We're always trying to think of topics, like how do we, what are the different life right. aspects that, that come at us? Um, and I think that's, yeah, and that's I- something that's so essential. You're you're so right, and I probably should mention it, and that's really where recovery coaching came from, this idea. Um, and like I said, you just have to be careful because there's a million peer recovery coaches out there. So um, technically, because there's very little regulation in this industry, if someone's not nationally certified, they can run the same exact business as someone like myself. And that's, you know, I think that's a little bit dangerous, um, but I don't think it's changing anytime soon. But what I wanted to say is the recovery coach piece, no matter what, if someone wants to go right to treatment, to me, it is so key that when they get out, they have a recovery coach. So, yeah, they have a sponsor, but this person is helping with life skills, and the sponsor can help more work them through the steps. Um, and, again, I think, you know, my sponsors have been amazing, but it doesn't mean that any one person, you know, you don't have one friend because people fulfill different needs with, with, you know, for you. And so to me, it's like to have that, you know, kind of palette, the recovery palette almost of, you know, a 12-step program, a sponsor, um, a recovery coach, and you're talking to this person. You know, the other thing that we do to date is allow um, kind of unlimited texting within any of those plans, like the recovery coaching, because that's huge. If someone's just having a moment, Um, They want to know that they can reach out to you. And so, you know, that's a part of the job, too, is knowing that you have to be available for people um, most of the time. And I have to say that my experience really was, and I've, I've talked about this on the show, that I was slow to community. I started off with just an online group, and I, I shouldn't say just because they did get me sober. I hit the road with travel for seven weeks right after I got sober. And, you know, my 
my life skills were really coming from reaching out to people who were giving me advice and I was really getting honest with myself and I was eating a lot of M&Ms. There probably was a better way Mm -hmm. to do that. And so, you know, I started um, going to recovery meetings sort of several months in and it was, I will say, waiting to do that was probably one of my bigger mistakes in recovery because I got so much relief of being with people in real life, which we're saying all the time here and really connecting. So now I can pick up the phone, you know, I'm, I'm here on the road at a conference, but I just, I saw sober friends this weekend and, you know, now I have sober people all over the country. Um, And yeah, so building that community and getting real connections. And that can be hard because, you know, if you're used to being hard charging and getting everything done by yourself, mm. you you think, you know, hey, I'm in control here. I can do this sobriety thing on my own. I don't need other people. And we talked about that on the ego episode. We talked about it two weeks ago on the relapse episode. Um, I just want to reiterate that from my own personal experience that, you know, opening up to other people has been just so essential to keeping me safe while I'm still trying to navigate the practical uh, aspects of, you know, working at a job like this. And that, this is Jean. Just listening to the different phases that, Danielle, you were describing, that's really a key element of each phase is building community and building relationships and building a support network that meets them where they're at, Right. Absolutely. And that's where, again, some people are nervous to go, whether it is meetings, you go with them to meetings if they want, or, you know, you help them find other um, groups that are going to work for them. I mean, because the goal is really to work yourself out of a job with this. Right. You know, you want someone to be doing so well that they don't need your support anymore because they've built that huge community um, to, you know, again, that palette of recovery, I'll call it, and, you know, to be able to, to access when they need it. Now, you talked about interventions where you have a, a business partner there. So in that situation, that would be where um, someone's performance was being affected by their drinking and, and the people around them wanted to see change. But my understanding is that there's some situations where, the business partners around uh, someone that's struggling may have an interest in propping them up and keeping them going and keeping the problem hidden and secret because maybe um, they don't want the company to have the shame and stigma of having a you know senior executive with a problem. And we all know about shame and stigma. Or maybe they don't want the board of directors to get wind of, of trouble or, you know, a family that doesn't want to lose their wealth or status. So do you find that situation happens, Danielle, and how do you deal with that? Um, so I obviously have personal opinions on this. So, you know, my whole thing is the whole we're only as sick as our secrets. Um, right. And I can say that because, you know, I came out and told everyone I was going to treatment I am just an open person, um, and and I just said, this is me. And you know what? I knew that in that I would help more people than if I stayed quiet. So it was more of a not selfish decision. Um, but I'm also open to the idea that, that there are other ways to do it. And, you know, some people, I know teachers, I know, you know, in any any career, that people just feel more comfortable not telling anyone. 
and 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 that's okay too. Um, you know, I respect that. Um, <clears throat> I feel like if you go really to some of the deep, deep work, it's like, what are you really hiding from? Like, do you really want to hide an aspect of who you are? Um, because I just think that in the end that doesn't, you know, it, it, it can tear us up inside, um, and even if it's on a subconscious level. Um, but at the same time, so if I think of, you know, the business partner situation, then you'd have to think somebody in that family then, if we're saying it's at the intervention level, has called and said, you know, we need to do this, in which case it wouldn't be a business intervention as much as it would be the family intervention, um, if that makes sense. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, companies have, um, uh, oh, what is the name, the employee, it's EAP, assistance program, um, and I think it's very much worth mentioning on this call that by law in any state in the United States, under the Family Medical Leave Act and um, um, Disabilities Act um, that you can tell your HR department that you would like to go, um, you need to take time off for treatment under the Family Medical Leave Act. Make sure you sign a piece of paper, but by law, they cannot let you go from your job. And I think that's a huge piece um, of this because so many people don't leave and then guess what? They just keep losing more and more until that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is really important for people to know that. Yeah, and I think, you know, it goes back to the whole with the with the stigma, um, you know, or just within an organization. Yeah, there are organizations where entire departments are, you know, and I've been there, um, where everyone's drinking and, and the managers are, are pushing it. But so... Um, you know, it just depends on who in that person's life is either going to support them. Are they ready to get support? You know, every and that's where every situation is different. I mean, people have to know that their boss might not understand this. They're not going to be okay with it, you know, at certain time, at certain scenarios. But, again, if we're talking about standing in our own power, then, you know, it, it, it's it's life or death, really, for a lot of, you know, in in a lot of these situations. Amanda told a really touching story on our last episode, which was about going to rehab, and, and she was saying that her friend that um, planned her intervention made sure that her boss came and told her personally, we will hold your job for you while you get well, because they knew that that would be the one thing that would stop her from going. And that's amazing. And, yeah. And you yeah. can... In those two weeks of planning, you can find out, you know, how is the boss power. We have that. I had someone that came home, and his boss was like, your job will be here, and he actually got arrested. So, you know, the, the there's other dynamics. So boss didn't really have to be that great, and um, he was wonderful anyway, so we knew that. Um, so, you again, that goes back to, like, understanding all the players mm-hmm. and um, Doing your sometimes you're going to have that. Yeah, and you know what? I think another thing is, as as everyone knows, like addiction, it, there's no one that isn't impacted by it in some way, especially now, and sadly. And so you just don't know. You don't know, I mean, who is going to be more understanding than you, you might think they are. And you don't know that in you getting help that you might be helping other people as well or helping them to want to get help. Right. Recovery is leadership. 
That's my banner on my my website, Recovery Leadership. Um, Now, you talked about the sober companion work, and I find that really fascinating. And one thing you were saying is that you have to be open to all pathways to recovery. I'm assuming that that means being open to all abstinence-based pathways to recovery, or at least abstinence being the goal. I'm guessing you don't want to be a sober companion for someone who is, you know, Right. Um, I mean, there not is drinking, but still using drugs or something. Right. I'm sorry for the that the the delay in the phone. Um, so no, you're right. Um, you know, there is such a thing as harm reduction. Um, mm-hmm. So, and and some people will request that. Um, my kind of idea on that is, you know, I like to be involved anyways because chances are either they're gonna hire me or someone else to do harm reduction until they find out that they just can't drink. So I'd rather be there for them. Um, But, yeah, there's, again, every client, you meet with someone, you find out what's important to them, you find out what they're open to do, and you work with them over time. Maybe you've had people that were so close to doing 12-step things and now, you know, go to regular meetings. So um, you just have to figure out what – another thing that I think is important to talk about quickly is – you know, we, it's kind of like this rubber band effect. We get sober, then we want everything. You know, we want, we want to do everything to the, the highest level. And, and it just goes back to this, like, rubber band theory, you know, where you pull the rubber band too hard, you let go, and it's going to snap. And so, and, and this kind of is also to answer your last question. You know, to me, this is so much about balance, about being grounded, um, things like yoga, meditation, quieting the ego, journaling, um, speaking. Uh, you know, those are all things that someone um, can do um, regardless of joining any other part of recovery. And I think they're all very critical in getting well. Mm-hmm. And you said earlier, um, Danielle, about how this is, you know, the identity of your work or fill in the blank, whatever high functioning, great stuff that somebody does can really be tied into workaholism. And I know Mm -hmm. that I, I struggle with that. I've struggled with it my whole life, even before my drinking Mm -hmm. um, took off. And so what recovery is doing for me is unpacking what kind of need is underneath that. I mean, this, you know, trying to be seen as, as competent, but also I have historically have had a lot of money fears. No matter how much money I made, it was just this mm-hmm. God-sized hole where I was looking for safety or control or some sense of normalcy or stability or something in my life. And a, a lot of um, my money fears, everything kind of boiled down into money fears. So I'd kind of work and work and work and work. Um I actually have a real problem with the, the, you know, especially as a woman in an executive level in business, I get the question Mm -hmm. all the time about work-life balance. And, like, I don't know where we got the idea that life was somehow going to be, like, a teeter-totter that would be, like, a scale or something that would come into complete balance. But this is, again, living life on life's terms. It's more like a wave, right? So you just have to learn how to, you know, ride the wave. Maybe you're working on a big project. And so for the next two weeks, you have to work like crazy. and But then, you know, if you have a newborn at home, that's where you're focusing your time. <laughs> so 
you know, for, for me and, and the concept of the bubble with the bubble hour comes from one of our founders, Lisa, who said, you know, she just dropped all social engagements, all pressures at home, like told her husband, hire a cleaning lady, feed the kids and keep them alive because I'm not, I need to be in my sober bubble and that's where I'm focusing. Mm-hmm. Um, Amazing. You know, so I think that it's, for me, it's more like, okay, the workaholism, like I am not served if I'm not feeding my body. And I'll get into that place where I'm just at the desk like a vulture, you know, and I'm not eating, I'm not going to the bathroom, I'm just working, working, working. And in recovery, I'm learning how to pause, how to, you know, would you treat a small child that way, like you said at the beginning? You Mm -hmm. wouldn't. So, you know, stop and use the bathroom, get some water, eat some lunch, do these things and and leave the office at some sort of uh, reasonable time um, and say no to events. We don't have to feel, we don't have to feel uh, pressured to say yes to everything, whether it's at work in a social setting or, or otherwise. Absolutely. And um, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I think, again, it goes back to, we don't get sober and like everything gets amazing. We get sober and then we can work on the things that were, you know, off kilter anyways to begin with. And so there you go, like exactly what you just said um, in regards to work and things. I, I think that's constant work and I don't think it would be life if it didn't have the ups and downs, you know, and that saying comes from the whole um, progress, not perfection. Like that's, I think what it's referring to, you know, but the truth is that we can work on anything when we're sober, we can work on all that. We can be mindful of the balance. Um, and, and we can't when we're not putting ourselves first and taking care of ourselves and, and protecting our sobriety. Mm-hmm. This is Jean. You know, I, I was uh, at my son's graduation last uh, spring and listening, you know, as the kids cross the stage, they read out their little, their resume mm-hmm. of achievements, you know. And so as Susie crosses the stage and they say, um, Susie is our valedictorian and she has uh, the provincial gold for track and field and they're, you know, reading all these things and the next mm-hmm. kid comes across and they're reading off all their accomplishments and and sometimes when those kids that had, like, the laundry list of achievements at 17, 18 years old, you know, I kind of thought, oh, you know, is that a little baby me? Is that a little baby Jean, a little baby Catherine, a little mm-hmm. baby Danielle, a little screwed up kid? So true. <laughs> and yet I'm not, I don't know that it's fair to project on that because sometimes I look at people that are successful and I'm like, is everyone who's successful screwed up or is everyone that's like really working hard screwed up? And and as I listen to you, I realize, you know, that's that's me. I've hopped onto the other side of the fence, sort of grandiosity and isolation <laughs> and thinking, I must be the only person who has it together. <laughs> I hope everyone else makes it over here where I am now. So I guess I do. my point is there's I lots do have of people to- with balance. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Deb. Sorry. (laughs) No, I just have to tell you, like, when I did my senior year, president of my class speech, I said those exact words, like that whole speech about, you know, I I referenced the whole it's not the money in your wallet or the car, you know, the money in your bank account or the car in your driveway. And I said that whole thing, but I had no, I spoke those words thinking it made sense, but I did not live that way. 
um, right. you know, until I, I learned what recovery meant. So how do we know who to look up to and who to look out for? I think that it, I don't know how you can really look out for. I think it's, you know, being in recovery, it's the same as going to a meeting and saying, you know, I want what she has. I want what he has. And I, I the key word there is balance. You know, if someone look like they have serenity, are they honest? Are they kind? Are they open? Are they willing? Um, you know, but do they still, are they firm? You know, they don't have to be aggressive, but are they assertive in speaking their truth? Um, you know, I think those are the things that, that we want to tor- try to gravitate towards. And anything that doesn't feel right and feels like the opposite of that is probably not better for, our, you know, improving our energy. Yeah, one of the traditions in 12-step programs is attraction uh, through uh, kind of getting membership through attraction, not promotion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how does that play out in my work life? Well, I get to stand in my integrity. And part yep. of what that means is that I have to be, and I can be, vulnerable with my team, with my colleagues. I can be honest I don't have to say yes to everything. I can create realistic boundaries. I can be uh, very direct in my communication and not squirrely. I don't have to take on things to try to look perfect or to seem okay with it that then will get me, you know, into feeling martyry. Um, you know, I, I can say no and stand by that. Um, I can fail and then admit to that, um, that's standing in my integrity, and that's what I hope people are looking to me now and, and what to look for is that I get, right. I get to be authentic. And believe me, I'll tell you, and I was a, on the outside a successful person before I got sober, but the last two and a half plus years, I've never been more successful. That doesn't mean I haven't had, you know, little challenges at work or things that have happened that that haven't gone, not everything's gone perfectly, in other words, um, except for the fact that I've, I haven't had a drink. Um, that, uh, that I have to do perfectly every day, uh, one day at a time. But um, I get to stand in my integrity, and I couldn't do that before. Not like I was stealing money from the petty cash drawer. I wasn't, it wasn't that. But I was not being authentic to who I am. Um, and that, that makes a poor leader. When you're not vulnerable, you can't be a good leader. That, it's dishonest. So now exactly I don't, why. Yeah, I don't have to be sorry. that way anymore. Yeah, I don't have to be that way anymore. You know? That's well, awesome. So, it's so great. I can see that both of you are women that... I know I look up to you and that uh, that others do. And what you said, Catherine, you know, both of you said this, just just being honest, being real, standing in your power, being authentic, that, that changes everything from the inside out, and that's always a stronger place to be. That's really amazing. Now, we're rounding out our hour. We've gone past our hour, so I guess it's time for the last thoughts roundup. Um, Danielle, anything we didn't get to that you wanted to make sure we touched on tonight? Yeah, no, I just I was just going to say that's exactly where I came up with the name of my organization, Real You Revolution, because 
for mm-hmm. me, this was about finding the real me down to the core. And I think that's what all of this is about. And, you know, how willing are we to really dig into that? Because it's that whole, like, everything you want is on the other side of your comfort zone. Um, and and so uh, anyone that's interested, again, feel free to reach out to us at um, realurevolution.com. Thanks Thank so much so for having much. me. Oh, you're just so interesting. This was really fascinating. Thank you so much. I know I learned a lot. And Catherine, Great. any any final thoughts from you? Any any closing thoughts? Yeah. You shared so much tonight. Thank you so much. Well, thank you both. I, you know, and as as I'm sitting here, you know, looking at my laptop, leering at me on the hotel bed, um, <laughs> I feel empowered. But you know what I, what I'm taking away tonight is that. Through my powerlessness over alcohol, I get to stand in my power every day, one day at a time. And that that makes me a successful person in anything that I'm going to do. It won't be perfect, but it will be successful. I get to stand in my power. Um, I'm not a victim anymore. It feels really good. Mm. Love it. That's great. Wow, this has been such an interesting show. Thank you both so much. I learned a lot, and uh, I can't wait to just listen to it all over again so that I can soak up some more. Um, I want to thank you, Danielle, for being with us. That's realurevolution.com. You can learn more about Danielle's business and about uh, – you write a blog on there as well, don't you, Danielle? Yep. Yes, I do. Yeah, so you can follow the blog as well. And um, as we close out the show tonight, I would like you to please uh, visit Shining Strong website. That's our parent organization, and that is at shiningstrong.org. And there you'll find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour, Crying Out Now, and links to some other initiatives that we are involved in, including our recovery advocacy and my blog, Unpickled. You can find us on the Bubble Hours website, which is thebubblehour.com. You can listen to the shows directly from that website, share your favorite episodes with friends, or you can follow a link and subscribe to our podcast. And they will automatically download to your phone so that you can listen as you go on Monday morning. So thank you, everyone, for listening to the Bubble Hour, and I hope everyone has a great evening. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye now. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.